From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. However, today, you know, more than 50% of reimbursement is tied to some type of cost or quality, and that's accelerating, you know. So from a business perspective, there's a significant financial opportunity related to succeeding in these types of payment models. I think just as importantly, there's a significant risk, you know, related to remaining stagnant or in the status quo. And I think there's an argument to be made that that's really not an option anymore. That's Dan Dooley talking about the financial opportunities found in value-based care payment models. We'll hear more from Dan in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. Is your answering service helping your practice do more with less? Does your answering service function as a seamless extension of your practice? Improve the patient experience increase staff productivity, and enhance your practice's communication with CCSP. CCSP is committed to the patient-provider experience, and they're ready to learn how you measure success and build a custom solution to meet it. Learn more at callcentersalespro.com slash MGMA. Mineral Tree provides HIPAA compliant, easy to use, end to end accounts payable and payment automation solutions that reduce costs by more than 75%, increase visibility and control, and mitigate fraud and risk while improving cash flow. Mineral Tree is a leading AP and payment automation provider in healthcare, and they love to show you why. To learn more, visit mineraltree.com slash MGMA. Our guest today is Dan Dooley, Vice President of Physician Services at R1 RCM. Dan's here today to talk about what practices need to do to prepare the revenue cycle for value-based care. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invite and looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. And first of all, just give us an idea about your background in healthcare. What What's your journey looked like and what have you, what have you been up to? Well, you know, as, hate, as much as I hate to admit it, I've been in healthcare for a little over 30 years now. Um, so I first 10 years of that was uh, spent in clinical delivery, uh, primarily in, in nuclear medicine and the radiology field. And the last 20 years has been in the, the business management side uh, with the majority of that uh, in revenue cycle, uh, serving hospitals, physician practices, and integrated delivery networks. Okay. Um, and then during the pandemic, where, where have you been focused? What has been kind of driving your day-to-day? Well, I think, uh, you know, personally, uh, it's been on, you know, the focus has been on family, friends, and, you know, just ways to support the local community, you know, as we're, you know, kind of navigating everything related to the pandemic. Um, And from a professional perspective, it's really been working through, you know, broad and deep changes uh, in the healthcare industry, you know, how care is delivered, how care is compensated and how to support medical groups so they can remain profitable while absorbing this vast amount of change in such a short period of time. 
you know, I think one of the things that's been really encouraging to watch through all of this, though, is, you know, everyone's really rallied around common goals and has worked closely together to, together to get through it. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of the silver lining for me in all this is to, is to kind of watch that dynamic play out. Have you guys um, changed any of your processes, any of your ways of communication? I mean, as far as you've been working with the teams, what what does that look like for you? Well, I think it's been, uh, you know, some of the common things that you've seen out there, you know, have impacted us as well. So, you know, we're travel is significantly less, you know, the kind of the physical footprint uh, and the on-site footprint uh, is less than it used to be. So it's, uh, you know, learning how to, you know, kind of engage and influence and manage, you know, through, you know, video conferencing, I think has been been an adjustment. I think operationally, it's been, you know, really around, you know, how do we optimize uh, our customers' financials um, most effectively, you know, and it's always been a focus, but it's just become such a significant part of, you know, how do they really keep the doors open? And so I think our adjustments have been uh, engaging them in some additional methods, you know, whether it's telehealth, um, you know, engaging them in sort of their journey meeting them where they're at in terms of what they can absorb from a change management perspective, you know, at a, at a point in time, just to, to keep them successful and, uh, you know, kind of keep moving forward in that direction. Right. When you were talking about change management, have there been any particular pain points, any recurring themes that you've seen when you're talking to practices or other partners that you have out there? I think it's less about pain points and it's more about prioritization, you know, so um, historically when you went, to, when you sort of engaged in these journeys of partnering, you know, in the way that we partner, you know, customers, there was a, a sort of a set playbook and, you know, a, a process and a time frame that you sort of work through, but given everything that they've been sort of navigating, you know, with the pandemic, it's required the, that to be adjusted on the fly. You know, and so I think there's a lot more um, prioritization of where to start. Um, again, I think how to engage really um, supporting them and engaging with their patients in new ways. You know, I think that's probably been the biggest, uh, you know, biggest adapt adaptation to our delivery model and our support model, you know, for our customers. Mm -hmm. Give us an idea then, if anybody who's listening doesn't know what these partnerships look like, just Walk us through that. If you're working with a, a practice, what does, you know, R1's uh, partnerships with those practices look like? Well, typically our partnerships are going to, you know, run the end-to-end -end gamut of revenue cycle. Uh, and, and we view that as starting with the patient access, you know, so starting with that, you know, that patient engagement model, um, the financial clearance, the visits, the scheduling, the referral management. And then ultimately ensuring that once those patients arrive, that you're optimizing, um, you know, the coding and the documentation, uh, that you're clear from an eligibility, from an authorization perspective. And so you're really optimizing the yield or your collection rate, you know, within that visit. And then ultimately, you know, sort of the, the claims and the uh, customer service side of that. So your, your post-care claims management, your post-care, you know, customer engagement. Um, 
You know, and I think the one of the key changes is, you know, we have uh, in our patient access mod, uh, model, it's really sort of the di digitization, you know, of that process to support telehealth, to support digital clinical intake, to support patient engagement and self-service scheduling, um, you know, because so many things now aren't happening on site face to face. And so it's been, uh, you know, I think one of the key successes, so, you know, for, you know, one of our large customers was to go from not having any type of digital engagement capabilities at all, you know, just mm -hmm. before the pandemic to implementing that across, you know, roughly 2 billion in net patient service revenue over the course of about two, uh, six months. You know, so that's really sort of uh, transformed their ability to engage with their patients and, and manage that uh, in a remote fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did want to talk to you about that, going from zero to 100, so to speak, and in some cases, um, some people were already doing a little bit of that virtual care, but uh, they were limited by the regulation. So what was y'all's role? Was there a lot of coaching involved or was there a lot of consulting? I mean, what, what were you doing to help practices be able to have great patient engagement? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of all of that. So, you know, one is the the analytics. Um, it's helping them uh, analyze and understand what are the needs of their populations. The second, again, I think it goes down to prioritization. So within that saying against these gaps or these needs that your population has, um, how do you sort of rank those from a criticality perspective, which is, you know, sort of a combination of coaching and consulting. And then ultimately, you know, I think one of the strengths, um, you know, that we have is just sort of the implementation process and the fact that we're, you know, we're partnered hand in hand, we're financially tied to their success, which is a win because it helps them variableize their fixed cost, you know, so if volumes or reimbursement go up or down, um, you know, our financial model ebbs and flows with them. So they, you know, they know they have sort of a, a contractually connected partner. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, a good contracts create good relationships. And so I think those relationships, uh, you know, allow for, um, you know, then just a trust in that implementation of that infrastructure that's required, you know. So we kind of handle it kind of soup to nuts through that. Okay. You had mentioned RevCycle a couple of times. And really today we want to get at the heart of um, how you can help practices prepare for RevCycle for value-based care. Um, Talk about first why that's so important right now, coming out of the pandemic, what that meant to value-based care, why it's more important than ever right now. Well, I think uh, there's three pieces, but you know, first and foremost, it's that the penetration of these types of payment models is now achieved critical mass. You know, so it's a, it's a meaningful percentage of the payer mix. Uh, it's been a slow roll over 10, you know, last 10 years or so. I think we've been talking about this for a long time. However, today, you know, more than 50% of reimbursement is tied to some type of cost or quality. And that's accelerating, you know. So from a business perspective, there's a significant financial opportunity related to succeeding in these types of payment models. I think just as importantly, there's a significant risk, you know, related to remaining stagnant or in the status quo. And I think there's an argument to be made that that's really not an option anymore. Um, 
You know, and I think the last piece is just from a patient care perspective, um, when executed effectively, there's a, a lot of proof points that demonstrate that these types of models work. Outcomes improve, cost is lowered, the patients are more satisfied and, and engaged with their uh, care providers. You know, so overall, it's a win-win. And I would say one of the, you know, kind of the interesting dynamics that has occurred in some instances with those that have gone very strongly into risk is that some as some of those costs just sort of organically reduced during the pandemic you know with the uh, you know reduction in uh, elective surgeries and things along those lines it actually uh, led to financial improvement you know for those that had that attributed risk you know so i think overall it's um you know it it's a clear and present now where five years ago, you could look at this as, hey, we have an option, you know, it, it may be better for us to stay in fee for service, but, uh, you know, I think that option's sort of gone away at this point. So, Dan, um, in earlier correspondence, you and I were going back and forth and you brought up a term, financial resiliency. I wanted to know a little bit more about that. I wanted, wanted to know what that means in, healthcare terms, what it means to a, a medical practice. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I view, you know, financial res resiliency is both kind of a characteristic and a capability uh, for medical practices. Uh, and there's common threads that you'll see amongst practices that have achieved that. You know, I think first and foremost, um, it's a mindset. You know, you look and that mindset is, you know, one of looking critically at all aspects of the business to constantly seek where you can improve, you know, so it's a continuous improvement type of mindset. I think the second thing is it's um, these practices really embrace change. Uh, and, you know, I think that's sort of a natural extension of continuous improvement, but uh, they embrace, um, you know, changes in market dynamics as opportunities to further drive improvement uh, in their financial performance. Mm -hmm. From a capability perspective, uh, you see common threads and, and techniques. Um, one would be lowering fixed costs um, through variableization. You know, so tying uh, your expenses essentially to reimbursement and volumes. And you'll often see that through strategic vendor partnerships, you know, with companies like ours or others. Uh, the second is actively managing payer contracts to optimize returns against your contract entitlement. And then that's an important concept because it, it changes from fee-for-service to fee-for-value. And fee-for-service contract entitlement generally means um, I have a visit, I'm owed a, a certain amount of fee-for-service revenue for that visit, what percent am I collecting uh, against that, you know, and there's denial management strategies and different types of collection strategies to ensure that you're kind of optimizing, um, you know, what you're owed against those dollars. And fee-for-value becomes much more broad. Uh, it starts to mean things like, uh, how am I optimizing my care gaps, my bonus structures, my utilization rates, my, my total cost of care? Um, but there'll be incentives and bonuses in uh, terms within the contracts, uh, and you're able to say, what does 100% look like if I was to, you know, sort of uh, hit a home run on all of these different factors? And then how am I performing against that, you know, and so it starts to uncover, you know, how do you prioritize, um, you know, the various investments that are going to allow you to move further down the stream towards, you know, contract entitlement. 
And I think the, the third piece is really just your leadership team. So it goes back to the mindset, but it's a leadership team that looks to instill that culture of continuous improvement and, you know, the, the looking at change as an opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I want to go back to that original term, though, that financial resiliency. Uh, I, I've read several articles and even a book on just being resilient as, as a, you know, a manager and, and be in working through your career and having resiliency in that way. So when we're talking about it culturally or in an organization like a medical practice, what does it take to be resilient in this way? Is it more of a mindset? Is it a skill set? Is there education, new staffing that needs to be made? How do you get that implemented into that practice so they can hit those home runs that you were talking about? Well, I think, you know, lead by example, um, you know, is, is a critical component of that, you know, so if you're just thinking about sort of the, the practice culture itself, uh, it starts at the top, it starts with that leadership team. And it's that leadership team that uh, is demonstrating to the staff, um, you know, here's how we actually navigate change, here's how we continuously look to improve, and here's how we celebrate um, celebrate the red. And what I mean by that is, at no given time are you ever gonna be 100% effective on 100% of things. And by celebrating the red, it encourages the folks that are on the frontline teams to bring forward those opportunities and say, hey, here's where we're gapped right now. Here's uh, some ideas on how to improve and really reinforcing that through, you know, celebrating that with your teams to say, hey, um, you know, they've brought forward an opportunity. They brought forward an idea and they're rewarded for that, um, uh, that type of behavior. I think as a, a company like ours, what we look to do is bring that mindset to a, a medical group, to a practice, just through you know our actions uh, and our behaviors, and uh, working with our customers to again start to instill that culture about celebrating the red. So, you know, uh, let them understand that you know opportunities are a good thing. Um, that we are going to you know work together to you know achieve a better state. Uh, but that you're always constantly going to be in that uh, cycle of identifying opportunities, uh, implementing improvements, and then moving on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to fee-for-service and value-based care, looking at that transition. Um, when you look at that, and I know that you were, you were making a, a strong argument for people just going, wait a minute, you know, value-based care really is the way to go now versus five years ago. But I know that there are still some late adopters. So what would you say to them? What are, what, how can they analyze that situation and, and be brought over to adopting value-based care? Well, I'd say probably the the first thing is that um, whether they realize it today or not, they have value-based care terms within their contracts because those are being pushed very heavily uh, from the payers. Um, you'll see some that have moved more aggressively into it, you know, whether that's United Healthcare, um, you know, or Aetna, uh, Medicare, for example, Medicare Advantage. Uh, but it, it, it exists today and it's a significant portion of your revenue opportunity. And, 
to really sort of, uh, you know, peel the onion on that, um, it, it, you need to analyze your current state. Uh, and that's really sort of doing a contract analysis where you take each of your, your contracts where they have a impact or payer max greater than 5%, review each of those specific terms to identify uh, what are what is the bonus structure, what are the incentives that I have, align those incentives to the operational levers that impact them. So it's, it's really sort of creating uh, the matrix that says, here's the term, here's the operation that's impacted against that. Determine the current performance of that, uh, that operation, uh, what the opportunities to optimize are, and then the prioritization based on the financial returns of the investment that's required to optimize that portion of your operations. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about this analysis, walk us through what it looks like then. If you're someone's going to get in and analyze that patient data, and they're going to look at it in new ways. Um, I'm open to however you want to walk us through this so we can all get a better understanding of that. Yeah, well, I think the first, um, the first it begins with the contracts. So uh, as you're kind of analyzing this information, you need to understand, you know, what are the key terms within those contracts and, and what that might look like as, you know, actually pulling those physical contracts, uh, you know, working with your payers to obtain those if you don't have, have them. Uh, and going through the list of all those incentive terms and laying those out in sort of the manner I, I described. From a patient analysis perspective, I think the big difference between sort of fee-for-service and fee-for-value is in fee-for-service, you're looking at, you know, things such as denial rates and bad debt rates. In your fee-for-value, you're looking at your, um, the, the continuum of that patient, that attributed patient, both within the four walls of your practice, but, you know, outside of your practice as well in terms of the utilization, you know, of ED services and patient services. And so what you do is um, oftentimes you can work with your payers to get this information, uh, particularly outside of the, uh, the four walls of your practice, but start within your practice and look at the key terms such as, uh, am I being incentivized for annual wellness visits, transitional care management, chronic care management? What is my uh, current um, um, conversion rates of those types of metrics? Where do the opportunities, uh, what, what does it mean financially uh, if I was to take my annual wellness visits from 50% to 75% conversion or my chronic care management from 10% to, to 40%? And then what investments are required to achieve that. The uh, utilization rates, uh, when you're looking at those, um, you know, that starts to get into um, a, a bit more of the clinical transformation front. But you're identifying within my utilization, what are the, the patients that are uh, utilizing those types of uh, high cost services uh, more so than others? How do I engage with those patients to help uh, change behavior or redirect that through, um, you know, re referral networks, provide uh, preferred provider pathways. There's multiple techniques, but it really comes down to um, accessing that data in a little bit different way than you typically do today in fee-for-service and viewing it from uh, sort of the, the clinical care continuum from the, the point of, um, before they came to your practice, mm -hmm. when they were in your practice, and what happens when they're outside of your practice. So 
we've been talking about mostly the, the positives of value-based care, uh, but if a practice is gonna move to those value-based care models, what are some of the challenges that they're gonna face? Yeah, I, I think there's multiple challenges. Um, I think the good news is that they're, they all can be overcome, but one of the first one is, uh, is there's uncertain and delayed returns uh, when, you, when you transition over to value-based. Um, you know, those uncertain returns are, I know how fee-for-service works. I know when I see a patient, I'm going to be, you know, paid within, you know, a, sort of a, an accounts receivable period of time. In the value-based world, I'm going to be paid as well, but those, those payments may not occur for, uh, you know, the next quarter, or it might be 12 months until you start to actually realize the upside in that. One of the ways to kind of manage that is to variableize your costs. Um, you know, again, working with partners that are financially tied to your success. So uh, you're um, minimizing your initial investment until, you know, those revenue streams start to materialize. The second is that the infrastructure investment's expensive, you know, so you have uncertain returns and you have investments that are needed to be made within your infrastructure for your analytics and your workflow tools, your patient engagement and self-service platforms, things that you do within your practice, whether it be care management or pre-visit planning, um, enhancements in your coding and documentation processes, all of those you know, cost money in an investment. And so I think, again, the more that you can variableize those types of investments, um, the more that you can overcome that challenge around, you know, it's expensive and I have an uncertain return. The third thing is probably that the revenue is harder to collect, you know, so it's, it is more complex. Um, you know, it used to be, um, you know, practices are generally collecting 95 to 98% of the fee for service dollars that are owed to them. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes when you look at it again, from that entitlement perspective for value-based terms, uh, on average, they're collecting about 40 to 60%. So the more, uh, you know, payers are transitioning the dollar from fee for value to fee for, or from fee for service to fee for value, uh, the harder it gets to collect and sort of organically the collection rate goes down if you don't put in the right investments to optimize that. And lastly, uh, because of the complex complexity, um, if you don't have the right cl clinical support operations in place, uh, there's a risk of increasing burdens on the providers and, you know, just a, a risk of burnout that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, we were corresponding earlier setting this up, and one of the things that you brought up there was a three-step framework uh, about value-based models. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, from a three-step framework, again, it, it, I'd go back to really understanding, um, you know, what your current state looks like. So it, it's analyzing those contracts, it's understanding, you know, what those contractual incentives are and how are you performing against that today? Um, where those gaps exist, which gaps have the greatest financial return if you were gonna invest and close those gaps. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's kind of step one. Um, Step two, then against that prioritization, it's installing the operational infrastructure that's required to you know, sort of close that gap. And, you know, there's several ways to think about this. I think the, 
the the cleanest way is what can I control within my practice today? So, you know, again, we talk about, you know, annual wellness visits, transitional care management, chronic care management, those types of things that they're value-based in uh, concept, but they're still paid via fee-for-service models, you know, traditionally. And there's also value-based incentives on top of that fee-for-service payment. So if I achieve uh, higher rates of annual wellness visit capture, I'm being paid for that visit through a fee-for-service, you know, at that point of time that I deliver that service. But I also have incentives on top of that in the form of bonus terms that say uh, we're going to put some additional revenue tied on a PMPM basis or a quarterly bonus payment to how many of those you're doing. Those are kind of win-wins and sort of natural places to start. Um, you know, then if you kind of keep moving through, um, you know, that infrastructure, it's what's next from developing those types of preferred networks and, and uh, clinical pathways. What do I need to actually help support my providers in that, whether that's a referral management system, some additional clinical support infrastructure. Ultimately, those sort of, um, you know, play through and allow you to get to the next level uh, of those opportunities that you're going to uncover as you kind of analyze your current state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also allows you to think through where do I want to take this and what do I need ultimately to start to um, become more proactive in how I move you know, down, uh, down the risk continuum. Like I say, there's, uh, payers are pushing this out now. Um, oftentimes, uh, medical groups can be reactive to you know, what's being pushed to them. Mm-hmm. But once you start to have the infrastructure and the analytics in place, you're able to identify how do you want to actually um, you know, move your practice further down risk and what are those financial returns and investments that are required to be successful? And ultimately, I think the last piece, um, you know, it's classically called clinical transformation. But as you start to have that infrastructure in place, as you start to have that visibility to your attributed population and what's happening through that continuum of care, then it allows you to kind of move to the next step where you're really able to sort of drive costs down through addressing, you know, disease management, behavioral health, your delivery footprint. You know, we've seen some medical groups that have opened urgent care clinics in order to reduce uh, ED visits, but your contracts have to be structured in a way that, you know, you're actually going to, um, you know, see uh, the, the ROI from doing that type of footprint investment. And then, you know, often um, it's risk stratification of your population and, you know, more frequent, longer visits with those high risk patients to really help them sort of manage their care better. Uh, home health, you know, things along those lines. Okay. Um, let's talk about KPIs and metrics then. What are some of those that uh, practices need to be aware of, be focused on to make sure this transition's working, make sure that the value-based models that they have set in place are efficient and doing what they're supposed to be doing? Well, I think it, you know, it, it probably ties back to that journey we just discussed a little bit. Mm-hmm. But... I would view these sort of in three buckets. Um, you know, one is those types of services that are paid via sort of fee-for-service models. Those are uh, easy metrics. Um, you should be able to get those through your existing practice management system. Um, you know, annual wellness visit conversion rates, TCM, CCM, and preventative screener, um, you know, conversion rates. Uh, that metric is looking at 
what is available to me via the population that I serve uh, and how many of those have I actually satisfied at this point in time. When you're looking to drive those conversion rates higher, um, you know, through some of the strategic investments or, you know, the patient engagement. Um, HCC capture and recapture, you know, suspect capture and recapture, which is looking at the identification, how many of these uh, HCCs am I identifying? Ultimately, how many are true positives and what are being presented to the provider? And then and what is being converted, you know, from that perspective. Um, the third is care gaps. And, and care gaps are essentially the delta between the numerator and the denominator and your quality measures. So as, you, as you're able to get insights into what your quality measures are, what portion of that population is making up that delta, um, you're looking to move your care gap closure, you know, closer to 100%. And then uh, the fourth and fifth categories really start to get into kind of the clinical transformation perspective. And those are your utilization rates, um, you know, whether it's uh, going to be uh, readmits, admits, ED visits, uh, basic utilization rates that ultimately then lead to your cost of care. So against your, your baseline period of time, what was my total cost of care against that attributed population? And, you know, how is that trending? You know, how is that forecasting moving forward? Mm -hmm. Do you have an example of a practice that's implemented any of these processes and made them work? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one success story I'd say is uh, a practice uh, in North Carolina, uh, Raleigh Durham Medical Group. I think they really kind of, uh, you know, embrace this. Again, you know, we were talking a little bit about the financial resiliency and just kind of the, the leadership culture there. Uh, they have a leadership culture that really looks to kind of embrace change and they, they've moved uh, fairly aggressively into, you know, value based over the last several years. Um, they have, um, both governmental and commercial ACOs, upside, downside, um, very engaged in MA plans, uh, incentives and, and bonus structures, actively managing their contracts as such. And, you know, they, as part of that, then what they did was really kind of follow that framework of analyzing what their current state was, identifying and prioritizing what those gaps were and putting the investments in place to really be able to, to close those gaps and realize those returns, then take those returns, reinvest them, and then further move themselves, you know, down the pathway towards risk. Um, some of those tools and programs that they implemented was, uh, you know, a patient experience platforms, you know, the, the ability to automatically engage with patients, uh, have self-service tools uh, for them to uh, engage directly with their um, their clinical care. They put in uh, ambulatory clinical documentation and pre-visit planning, which is really sort of a clinical support mechanism to help identify for the providers what type of opportunities exist within this patient against those uh, specific you know uh, contract terms, whether that's HCCs or care gaps. And I think really importantly, what that did was increase the true positive rate of what was being uh, presented to the provider. And that led to provider adoption because they knew when they were getting the information that that information was valid. Uh, they implemented uh, interoperable point of care term uh, tools to make it easy for the provider to actually uh, um, see those insights and act on those insights. And a lot of this was extended just off of the revenue cycle, or off the revenue cycle, 
which was a, you know, a smart and cost-effective way, you know, to actually take some existing infrastructure, extend it uh, in a cost-efficient way and, and achieve these new capabilities. And so what that meant for them from an outcomes perspective is that they saw dramatic increases in their uh, transitional care management, chronic care management, and, and annual wellness visit conversion rates, um, uh, dramatic increases in their care gap closure rates, and then ultimately, you know, I think they're, um, you know, nationally in the top quintile as it relates to their HCC capture rates. So it's, um, you know, for a hundred million, uh, roughly uh, dollar practice, uh, about a hundred providers, um, it's uh, currently trending, um, you know, between five and seven million dollars of, you know, bottom line improvement financially. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, before we sign off, I wanted to see if you had any final thoughts you wanted to share with us, maybe a main takeaway uh, that people could implement and, and put into practice uh, in their own jobs. Yeah, I'd say just, you know, from a key takeaway perspective, um, you know, I think one is it, it, this is here and now. So I, you know, I think value-based care uh, exists now within the contracts today at nearly all physician practices in a meaningful way. And, you know, I think the understanding what that is, uh, you know, uh, and the actions that are required to actually um, be successful, you know, may seem daunting, but, the, you know, they're very doable. And it really comes down to the prioritization of where to start. And I think for practices that, you know, really haven't engaged uh, actively uh, as of yet, um, you know, I, it's starting with those uh, fee-for-service opportunities uh, that both tie to uh, fee-for-service reimbursement, but all, all ultimately value-based incentives, you know, such as the, the annual wellness visits and certain aspects of care management. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I think it's, it's starting with those, um, those fee-for-service opportunities that also, also tie to, you know, value-based incentives, um, you know, the annual wellness visits, transitional care management, chronic care management, you know, certain gaps in care. Um, you know, and I think the, the journey might seem a little daunting, but, you know, there's, there's help. And I think with the right partners uh, and the right type of investments, um, any practice can be highly successful. Okay. Well, Dan, thanks so much for sharing these thoughts with us today and uh, glad to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Dan Dooley. And thanks to Mineral Tree and to CCSP, for sponsoring this week's show. Mineral Tree is a leading AP and payment automation provider in healthcare, and they love to show you why. To learn more, visit mineraltree.com slash MGMA. And CCSP is ready to learn how you measure success and build a custom solution to meet it. Learn more at callcentersalespro.com slash MGMA. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at MGMA.com.
or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.